Stay tuned for episode one of a special four-part series on South and Central America, produced by Loreto Rojas and Cal Winslow. Good morning, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This morning, we are back with a new segment in our occasional series of programs concerned with Hispanic culture, or more correctly, our Latin culture and cultures. We will move from our discussions of the southern border, where we brought experts to talk about the crisis of immigration, to a much bigger picture that takes us farther to the south. We will look first at four countries all our neighbors, all key to the development of the American continents, all routinely subject to U.S. interventions. The first this morning will be Brazil, the world's fifth largest country by size, seventh by population. Following that, we will look at Chile, Venezuela, and Mexico. And in this context, we'll hear today about Lula, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, just recently elected president of Brazil, defeating Jair Bolsonaro, the ex-president and co-thinker and political practitioner with Donald Trump, now residing, as many South American strongmen do, in Florida. Our guest this morning is Forrest Hilton, professor of modern history at the Universidad Federal da Bahia in Salvador, a state which is as big as Colombia and where most people, he tells us, are and have been Luista. Professor Hilton has a PhD from New York University. He's the author of books and essays on race, ethnicity, class, regional, and state formation in the Andes since the late 18th century, with a particular focus on indigenous political culture, consciousness, and mobilization. At uh, New York University, he won prizes for teaching and for uh, his doctoral dissertation entitled Reverberations of Insurgency, Indian Communities, the Federal War of 1899, and the Regeneration of Bolivia. Hilton is the author of Evil Hour in Colombia, which has been translated into Spanish, French, and Portuguese. With Sinclair Thompson, he is co-author of Revolutionary Horizons, Past and Present in Bolivian Politics, which has been translated into French. So with, with that, good morning, Professor Hilton. Muy buenas tardes. Good afternoon. Boa tarde. And um, your listeners will uh, for, forgive the, the, the long list of activities in different places and languages, but uh, so, so it has been. And please call me Forrest. We will then. Well, let's get uh, started with this. Let me say, like most Americans, we're a bit geographically challenged. You're in Salvador. Can you tell us where uh, Salvador is, how, what, what it's like there, and how you came to be in Salvador? Sure. Uh, Salvador da Bahia is a, 
is a city that for centuries had a direct connection to uh, Luanda in Angola and that did not pass through Europe. And it was four centuries, the center of Brazil's slave trade, which was by far the largest in the hemisphere. So today, Salvador de Bahia uh, remains one of the, the largest uh, cities uh, with an Afro-descended majority um, and is uh, traditionally been a sort of powerhouse of Afro-Brazilian culture and also um, what we could call uh, popular politics as well. So um, that kind of historical legacy and cultural legacy uh, of slavery and abolition and the search for uh, freedom and democracy on the part of Brazil's mostly dispossessed majority um, led to the election of Luiz Ignacio Luiz da Silva for the first time in 2002. He had run twice before uh, without success, but the third time was a charm. And then Lula spent two terms in office. And it was the first time in the history of Brazil where that um, Afro-descended and indigenous-descended and, and people of all sorts of different mixes uh, who had been excluded from Brazilian politics and effective citizenship were effectively brought into the nation. Uh, unfortunately, it was a kind of consumerist citizenship to a certain degree um, that focused mainly on sort of uh, redistributive mechanisms through social programs and, and the financing of a consumer boom uh, on the part of people who previously had not had much access in the way of consumer goods. However, Lula's first governments also did an enormous amount to strengthen the public health system uh, and, and proved pioneering in the ability to get, you know, masses of people vaccinated. Um, and he also strengthened the higher education system to uh, an incredible degree, building universities uh, and investing in science and technology and above all, democratizing universities by allowing Afro-descended and mixed people into them and preserving places for them uh, in the universities. Light-skinned Brazilians had been able to use these kinds of public institutions essentially as kind of subsidies to the middle class and the upper middle class, um, which was not racially exclusive, but was dominated by light-skinned people and people of uh, poorer backgrounds, whatever their, their racial ethnic makeup were largely excluded. So that changed under Lula. Uh, and this of course generated a backlash and that backlash began to gather steam um, under Lula's predecessor, uh, Dilma Rousseffi, who was elected in 2010 to continue Lula's legacy of uh, sort of what we could call moderate social democracy without really threatening any of the interests of capital, whether finance capital or agribusiness, um, you know, uh, business did very well, as did the military under Lula. But nevertheless, the moderate steps toward democratizing the country, including all sorts of um, essentially racially and ethnically uh, marginalized groups who make up the majority of Brazil, including them, generated a backlash, and particularly in places like higher education. 
Um, and this backlash began to receive support from the military and some important defections from uh, the kind of traditional, what we might call neoliberal right wing that paved the way for the overthrow of Dilma Rousseff in 2016 in a parliamentary coup. Uh, and then the imprisonment of Lula on trumped up charges uh, and the election of Jair Bolsonaro, who was an absolutely obscure and insignificant politician. He'd been in the lower house of the Chamber of Deputies for a couple decades, but he had never, I don't think, successfully uh, sponsored a bill through passage. And, you know, there was very little um, known about him except for the extremity of his kind of um, essentially quasi-fascist sort of statements. I mean, sometimes they were more openly fascist when he would, um, you know, um, lionize Hitler in some of his statements, but mostly it was uh, racism and misogyny and homophobia and uh, saying that, you know, Brazil would have been better off if the military dictatorship had, you know, finished the job, gotten rid of all the communists, even if it meant disappearing 30,000 people. I mean, he was famous for nothing but really extreme statements. And he wasn't a Trump-like figure in that he was not some kind of well-known entertainer or anything like that. He was an obscure figure. And he became the figurehead for um, the rise of a far right wing sort of joined at the hip with uh, the MAGA phenomenon in the United States. And indeed, Bolsonaro's son, uh, Eduardo, I believe it is, is part of Steve Bannon's network and you know has been back and forth to events. So this kind of far right wing that Bolsonaro represents has one peculiarity, which is the, the, the degree to which the Brazilian armed forces were backing him and the degree to which the Brazilian armed forces ultimately call the shots. Uh, but the rest of it was just sort of textbook far right politics in the age of Trump. Um, and, and Bolsonaro considers himself close to Orban in Hungary and would like to, you know, be able to maybe uh, beat a retreat to Italy uh, if possible. So, so Bolsonaro is an international phenomenon, and yet the national circumstances that allowed him to come to power were very specific. And the Northeast where I am, which is the size of Colombia, and I'm not sure what the population is, but it's a densely populated region with a lot of votes. And they helped bring Lula back. Uh, once Lula was released from prison, decided he was going to run again, uh, you know, it, it seemed that he might have a good chance of defeating Bolsonaro, but because Bolsonaro was in power, he was able to use the machinery of the state to corrupt elections and then claim that he had been the victim uh, of electoral fraud when all the evidence points to the fact that he was the perpetrator uh, of electoral fraud. Lula won nevertheless by a really tiny margin. And where I am now, Bahia, has about 15 million people, uh, probably like 80% of them uh, would be considered black and brown. And they gave Lula something almost like four million dollars, four million votes more than Bolsonaro. Um, so Bahia is a special stronghold for the PT historically, uh, for Lula as a presidential candidate, 
And it's also because Bahia is very populous with a total of 15 million people. But um, just up the coast from Bahia is Pernambuco. And that's where Lula grew up um, as a boy. And then he emigrated to Sao Paulo with, uh, with his mother. And I think his mother was a domestic, although she may have had another working class occupation in, in Sao Paulo. And of course, he became uh, a charismatic leader of the great industrial workers, auto workers union in the ABC area of Sao Paulo in the late 1970s, leading really important strikes against the military dictatorship and uh, playing a crucial role in the transition from dictatorship to democracy. But as I said, the problem in Brazil is that that transition from dictatorship to democracy left the military largely uh, untouched. In Argentina, in contrast, the military really doesn't anymore participate in politics after the dirty war, which ends in the early 1980s. And then when Argentina makes its democratic transition, it really uh, specifically excludes military participation intervention in politics. That didn't happen in Brazil. And as a result, you know, Bolsonaro became the far right's candidate. And it was specifically to position the South in the Southeast, which is much richer, more developed in the capitalist sense, and much whiter overall, <clears throat> where more European immigrants came in the post-abolition period in Brazil. Um, there, was, there was a revanchist component uh, a regional revanchist and a racial revanchist component to Bolsonaro's victory, which is that his strongest support came from the South and the center West. And the Northeast, which is darker and poorer, uh, remained solidly, solidly Lula uh, even in 2018. So Bolsonaro is, is no longer in power, thanks largely to the participation of um, you know, poor and working class uh, Bahians and others uh, from the Brazilian Northeast. Uh, Forrest, how does um, the Amazon and the rainforests, how do they fit into this uh, story? So <clears throat> the, the region of the country that is Amazonian is just enormous. And I, I wouldn't know exactly what the percentage is, but it has to be something on the order of two thirds. And it's also, of course, the least densely populated region by far. And it is essentially only accessible to light aircraft, helicopters, and above all boats. So traditionally the, the state presence there, the federal government presence has been pretty weak. And what you have are kind of local oligarchies um, in the mayor's offices, the governor's offices. And these oligarchies are either connected to or directly sort of uh, leading participants in um, logging, much of which is illegal, takes place in lands that are, are slated to be protected. Um, and agribusiness, particularly soy, and of course, uh, illegal gold mining operations. So in these areas, 
the kind of combination of um, logging, mining, agribusiness, as well as cocaine coming from Colombia and Peru, moving its way through the Brazilian territory in order to be exported to Europe um, by Brazil's largest organ organized crime uh, group, which has a presence in every single border state and you know, to a large degree controls these porous borders um, more than the state itself does. So right now, Lula's government has a huge task in trying to assert sovereignty in the Amazon because Bolsonaro's government simply let the, the agribusiness, the logging, the mining, and the cocaine interests run wild in the Amazon. And, you know, there's, there, there's really tragic kind of connections between neo-eugenicist ideas about, you know, letting the sick and the sickly just die and die off because, you know, only the strong survive. Uh, and the strong are, you know, the people with state power and economic power and the weak in this case would be the Yanomani indigenous group uh, who live along Brazil's frontier with Venezuela. And, you know, they have been subject to genocide under Bolsonaro um, on behalf of the mining interests and the logging interests. And, you know, he essentially makes the, the Yanomani indigenous group, which is about 30,000 strong today, roughly, he makes them out to be um, sort of a creation of uh, NGOs, right? NGOs play the role that the Communist Party used to play uh, in terms of providing the outside agitators who are stirring up the indigenous population, uh, you know, and complaining about mining and logging and so forth. But Bolsonaro, during the pandemic, um, made sure that the, the one anti-malarial drug um, that the Yanomani had access to was not available and that's chloroquine. And so Bolsonaro prescribed chloroquine for everybody in Brazil except the Yanomani who couldn't get access to it. And medicines that were specifically designated to go to the Yanomani during the pandemic um, wound up in the hands of evangelical NGOs as well as uh, some of the illegal mining operators who, um, who operate the, the air transit bridges in and out of the zone and the anti-malarial uh, anti drugs wound up um, being used by the, by the illegal miners rather the indigenous people. So um, at every step of the way, it seems that efforts to aid the Yanomani were thwarted under Bolsonaro, um, and he may well be guilty of genocide. Uh, time will tell. He's likely to be charged with genocide in Brazil. And um, the, the Nazi connection, uh, like I said, there's never been so many Nazis in any government, or, or neo-Nazis, if you like, in any government in Brazil, not even the military dictatorship. And um, you know, the, 
the extremism of their views towards indigenous peoples in the Amazon is really alarming. I haven't seen anything like it in Colombia where indigenous peoples in the Amazon have been in the eye of the, the storm, which has been Colombia's endless civil wars, but the kind of deliberate uh, projects of extermination that we see um, in many of the border states uh, in, the, in the Brazilian Amazon um, is really, really uh, disturbing. And, and the scenes of Yanomani elders and children starving sort of have, have brought home the, the connection to neo-Nazism and you know, the history of the Third Reich um, to a lot of ordinary Brazilians. So I think this is really important because the Amazon in many ways is out of sight and out of mind for a lot of the Brazilians in South and Southeast Brazil, as well as Northeastern Brazil. Um, but the, the tragic situation of the Yanomani has brought it uh, very much kind of center stage right now within Brazil. And it has to be said that Lula's government for the first time has really important indigenous women as ministers women who have a long experience uh, in politics and in public institutions, public service, as well as an intimate knowledge of um, the kind of problems that the Yanomani and other groups are facing on the ground in their struggle for survival. And I think that uh, the track records of these uh, women who are now ministers certainly should inspire confidence that the, the relevant ministries have competent leadership and are going to be acting in favor uh, of the interests of the indigenous peoples in, in Brazil, who, if I'm not mistaken, don't, I don't think they make up much more than 1% of the overall population, which explains some of the, the sort of lack of awareness and, and, and ignorance overall all in Brazil around indigenous issues, but lately that seems to be changing. And what's most remarkable, I guess, is the, the alacrity of the response by Lula and his minister of justice, as well as um, the ministries I mentioned who are run by indigenous women, and that would be FUNAI, which is the National Organization of Indigenous Peoples in Brazil, and the recently created Ministry of Indigenous Affairs. So what, what we've seen so far is a really impressive, coordinated and effort of cooperation between government ministries to get rid of these illegal gold mining camps and to begin to stop uh, the illegal logging operations, which are turning the, the Amazon into, into Savannah. And under Bolsonaro, that was happening so fast that it may in fact already be irreversible, but um, the Lula government has clear-cut plans on how to stop the burning of the Amazon without necessarily driving uh, cattle producers into bankruptcy. So we'll, we'll see if that works, but the seriousness of the effort uh, cannot be doubted. So it's a start. Thank you so much, Forrest. And for our audience, uh, you are listening KZYX community radio station here in Mendocino County. And with you this morning are Loreto Rojas and Carl Winslow. We are interviewing Forrest Hilton. And he's a professor at the Universidad Federal da Bahia in Salvador, Brazil. So 
Thank you so much for listening this morning. Uh, Forrest, uh, very interesting, everything you are telling us, giving us uh, such a large context about the situation in Brazil right now. So we know that uh, Lula, the current president of Brazil, um, had already been to Washington, where he met with both Biden and Senator Sanders. So what is your take about this? How is the relationship going on now between the United States and Brazil? So in 1964, when the moderate reformist government of João Goulart was overthrown, there was a U.S. Navy warship stationed off the coast. And the, the U.S. ambassador and the CIA and so forth were, were very much aware of what was happening and supported the coup. I believe the U.S. government recognized the coup almost immediately after it happened. And then the Brazilian military dictators went on to help implement military dictatorship elsewhere in the hemisphere. And they were absolutely crucial to the rise of uh, General Augusto Pinochet in Chile in 1973. So we can say that the U.S.-backed military dictatorship in Brazil in 1964 kind of set off a, a chain reaction throughout South America that, you know, continued on through the 60s and 1970s and then in the 1980s into Central America. So that event is, is really important, the overthrow of sort of moderate uh, social democracy in Brazil in 1964. Fast forward now to the 8th of January, 2023, two years and two days after the effort to storm the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. When that happened, uh, Jair Messias Bolsonaro, who, by the way, was expelled from the army for a false flag operation, he was planning a uh, uh, to, I believe, to bomb maybe even a military installation in order to pin it on left-wing guerrillas. And um, the attack never came off, and he was expelled from the army as a result of this false flag operation. Bolsonaro explicitly upholds publicly the sort of hardest kind of pro-torture wing of the dictatorship. So, you know, that's his relationship to 1964, and in fact, when Dilma Husefi was impeached, he paid homage to this torturer, uh, the leader of the pro-torture faction in the dictatorship, who had tortured Dilma Husefi. So Bolsonaro comes to power with the support of the United States. And above all, it's this judge, Silvio uh, uh, Sergio Moro, who's now a senator, and he basically performed this quid pro quo, whereby he would make sure that Lula was in jail and couldn't run against Bolsonaro if he could get the Ministry of Justice, which he did. He was given the Ministry of Justice because he put Lula in jail. Now, the U.S. was our, our man in Brazil this time was Sergio Moro. Right. Much more than Bolsonaro himself, it was Sergio Moro and Sergio Moro uh, kind of destroyed Brazil's judicial system in the name of fighting corruption. So, of course, this is going to be the strategy basically employed in Bolivia to get Evo Morales out of power in 2019. But Bolsonaro could not have come to power without the U.S. backing 
for the destruction of the PT and the jailing of Lula. Now, Bolsonaro proceeds to run Brazil into the ground to such a degree that US, European, and Brazilian investors are worried about the chaos that he's generating. The only people that are happy are the loggers, the miners, and the agribusiness people. And even they have to be worried because they sell a lot of their soy to China and, and Bolsonaro begins to get into some kind of uh, you know, anti-Chinese stuff to, to cozy up to Trump. Um, so you know, an incredibly chaotic panorama in terms of, you know, okay, we're gonna have we're gonna back this far right guy. And then, you know, obviously once Joe Biden comes into power, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's support, because he's so closely tied to Trump, begins to erode. And Bolsonaro begins to be perceived as a threat. And the Brazilian establishment, the leading figures in finance, uh, you know, what little is left of Brazilian industry, um, you know, people located in Sao Paulo and Rio where the power is begin to say, you know, the only way to get Bolsonaro out is to bring Lula back. And so Lula is rehabilitated and resuscitated with the support of the United States now. And some CIA memo was leaked, um, I believe, where they were saying, yeah, we're not, we're not uh, interested in, in any of that and, and we're monitoring the activity closely. And I think maybe another Department of Defense document was leaked whereby they were telling the Brazilian armed forces, don't even think about supporting a coup because we won't be with you if you do. So this is the difference between 1964 and January 8th, 2023. The U.S. is not with Jair Bolsonaro anymore. And it's not even clear if they want him hanging around in uh, Orlando, Florida for the next six months. He's going to try to get a six months extension on his visa, but it's not even guaranteed that he's going to be given that extension. Now, this has to be a first in the annals of uh, Latin American dictators fleeing to the United States uh, and you know, essentially taking up residence there. And in fact, often be giving, they're often given gigs at places like Georgetown and Yale. Um, but not in this case. So clearly, you know, January 6th, 2021 is kind of important for the Western hemisphere in that sense, uh, because Biden doesn't, doesn't want any more of this sort of thing on his watch. And certainly the U.S. is not going to be supporting it. So this is a pretty dramatic transformation. And the, the U.S. ambassador to Brazil I think posted on, you know, maybe her Instagram account or something like this, uh, a photo of herself uh, in a in a kind of uh, handshake with the governor of Bahia, who's a straight PT functionary. And the only reason that he's the governor of Bahia is because Lula wanted him to be the governor of Bahia. Uh, he's not somebody who's well known in the state or or, you know, he's not particularly charismatic, but Lula uh, you know, carried this guy across the line so that he's governor and um, considers Bahia to be pretty strategic. Lula himself was here uh, not long before Carnival and then during Carnival. But the U.S. ambassador has posted a, a photo of herself here at, at Carnival in Salvador, uh, you know, shaking hands with the PT governor of Bahia. 
this is really, uh, this is novel um, in, in the context of US-Brazilian relations. And um, I think it has to do with the fact that Bolsonaro simply, like Trump, introduced far too much chaos into the system uh, in terms of what both Brazilian investors and foreign investors want. And so the United States sees Lula as somebody who can actually govern Brazil and who can actually stabilize Brazil and establish a fairly transparent and predictable set of rules for investors whereby investors will profit handsomely, whether they're Brazilian or multinational, and they'll probably be expected to pay a tiny bit more in taxes. Um, because as far as I can tell, the main plan is to tax high net worth individuals in Brazil to pay for social programs. Lula said that's what he's what has been elected to do and that's what he plans to do. Um, ironically, I would say Lula is getting better press in the United States right now after his most recent visit with Biden, uh, and even before, in fact, uh, than he is in, in um, Sao Paulo, which is the kind of center of the business community. But, you know, the, the attempted coup of January 8th here in Brazil, it had the support of the, the Grupo de Segurança Interna, which is the sort of internal security group uh, responsible for the, the president's security and the vice president's security, I think, and perhaps the presidential palace's security. And this was penetrated completely with Bolsonaristas and um, it's run by this very ghoulish general uh, named um, General Eleno and uh, it's unlikely that General Eleno is going to be punished in any significant way, but some of the lower level functionaries who were caught sort of socializing with the with the coup plotters have been punished. The coup plotters themselves have been and will be punished. And um, it's not really clear what cards Bolsonaro has left up his sleeve, especially since the main card he always had was, you know, sort of tacit or explicit support from the United States. Now that he doesn't have that, and now that the first effort to um, contest the elections, so he, it's it's worth stressing the Bolsonaro went with the same Trumpian big lie that you know I'm not sure that Bolsonaro was willing to go so far as to say that he actually won the elections, but he he was saying that you know the elections had been tampered with, that they weren't above board. And he was saying, you know, for months in advance that if, if, if he didn't win the elections, then by definition, you know, they had been tampered with. So he, he, Bolsonaro is an extremely derivative kind of figure in certain ways. It's hard to see him surviving without Trump um, there to kind of block and tackle for him uh, on the world scene. And, you know, Bolsonaro kept quiet after he lost the election, uh, and I suppose he was, you know, plotting his coup. He wasn't, he wasn't in Brazil when the coup happened. And that I, I would, I would guess is so that he could claim plausible deniability, but uh, you know, there's going to be a serious enough investigation that should Bolsonaro have a direct role in coup plotting, the ministry of justice is going to find out. 
Um, you know, if if there were contacts that went directly to Bolsonaro about this, um, they will be discovered. So um, he's in a lot of hot water here in Brazil. The the Supreme Court seems to be saying, okay, but he's too big to jail, right? If we jail him, that might really kind of galvanize supporters um, in, in a way that would lead to greater violence and chaos and destruction. I personally don't think that's true. I don't think they have the strength or the stamina to do much at this point. I think they've been pretty, pretty effectively contained for the time being. And one of the major kind of new twists in, in this story is that the governor of Sao Paulo, which is by far the largest and richest state, largest in terms of population and richest in terms of, you know, it's, it's gross domestic product. The governor of Sao Paulo is a kind of Bolsonaro clone, and he's actually from Rio de Janeiro, where Bolsonaro's from. And Rio de Janeiro is where organized crime meets corrupt politics meets big business. And that's where Bolsonaro and his sons come from. They come at the intersection, that junction point. And so does this governor of Sao Paulo. And yet, in the face of natural disaster, which has led so far to 45 deaths uh, from flooding on the Sao Paulo coast, Lula flew to Sao Paulo, you know, cut his uh, carnival in Salvador short immediately, flew to Sao Paulo, and uh, together with the governor said, listen, the elections of 2022 are over. This is a natural disaster. In order to, um, to, to aid and support people whose lives and houses uh, have been upended or destroyed by this natural disaster, uh, the federal government needs to work together with the state government and sort of ideological frictions have simply no place in, in this equation at this moment. And this position was embraced by the governor of Sao Paulo as well as uh, Lula himself. So it's hard to think of a figure of the, of the kind of size of this governor of Sao Paulo in domestic politics right now more sort of closely associated with Bolsonaro or better poised to kind of throw a wrench into the works. And that's not how he's chosen to respond to the natural disaster. And similarly in Congress, uh, Bolsonaro's party is the largest party in Congress. And that's the, I believe the case in the Senate as well as the House. But in the absence of any leadership from Bolsonaro, the vast majority of Bolsonaro aligned Congress people have been kind of lining up to cut deals with the governing coalition, and they're going to align themselves essentially with kind of pragmatic material interests having to do with government pork rather than kind of ideological fealty to Bolsonaro. So there are very few politicians in Brazil right now who put their own careers on the line to defend their kind of loyalty to Bolsonaro or their association with him. He has become somewhat toxic, even for supporters, at least those in the in the official political realm. So right now, it's kind of shocking how quickly and perhaps only for the time being, the, the kind of fascist threat to Brazilian democracy has been neutralized by Lula's government. That, that's good news.
Forrest, it kind of fits into the last question from me. And that is, uh, could you tell us in a, a word a bit about uh, the Workers' Party and uh, is that connected to the trade union movement? Is the trade union movement uh, strong, weak, whatever in, in Brazil? How do they come into play as a, a force? Uh, thank you, Carl, for that question, because also I wanted to clarify for the audience that uh, when Forrest, uh, our guest today, Forrest Hilton, historian, he is talking about the PT, is that this is Partido dos Trabajadores. So this is the, the Workers' Party of Brazil that it was founded in 1980. And uh, Lula and other important politicians in Brazil have been part of this uh, party, which is one of the most uh, important parties in Brazil. And they have run in many elections coming second or, or winning elections as it has been the case with Lula and recently when he regained the presidency. So Forrest. Yeah, so the, the workers party, the PT, when, when um, Lula ran for the first time, it was on the PT ticket and again on the PT ticket. And so, to a large degree, uh, the, the, the Workers' Party, its electoral fortunes have always depended on Lula's presidential bids. And, and then, of course, his successor, Dilma Husefi, uh, she was also uh, a longtime uh, PT or Workers' Party militant. And then Lula is reelected as the Workers' Party candidate in 2022. So, the evolution of the PT and the, and the evolution of industrial manufacturing workers. Brazil had a fairly limited number of industrial manufacturing workers, let's say in the 1950s, and it began to expand. It first began expanding to some degree in the 1930s under a kind of right-wing military figure named Getulio Vargas. And then it expanded further in the 1950s and 60s under kind of moderate reformist governments until the military dictatorship uh, from 1964 to 1986. And their uh, industrial manufacturing spread to some degree, but a great deal of it was done under the aegis of multinational capital. So Volkswagen cars would be one example, rather than, let's say, domestic industry per se. And it was the car industry in particular, that was the initial nucleus uh, for the Workers' Party. And it was in the auto industry in the late 70s that these wildcat strikes broke out. And, you know, we're talking tens of thousands and, and perhaps upward of 100,000 uh, industrial manufacturing workers defying the dictatorship through strike activity and demanding a transition to democracy understood not in a, in a kind of thin or narrow kind of neoliberal way, but understood in a really broad way that would give Brazil's workers, you know, rights like healthcare and education and a range of social programs. So Lula was the maximum leader of those industrial manufacturing workers in the auto sector and also the metal workers union. And yet as Brazilian capitalism evolved, in the 1980s, but especially in the 1990s, 
with more and more privatization of state industries and more and more sort of neoliberal structural adjustment programs um, that were gutting social programs, um, the class composition changed and the industrial manufacturing uh, class in Brazil is tiny compared to what it was in the late 1970s or early 1980s. And, you know, there's been a sort of flood of deindustrialization, especially in the oil industry, uh, but in related industries. Here in Bahia, there was a, a Ford plant um, that was closed down, I believe, last year or the year before that. I think 5,000 manufacturing jobs might have been lost. For Bahia, that's incredibly significant. So uh, there, was a, there was a petroleum refining plant here in Bahia that was also dismantled. And, and that was really important economically. So to the degree that industry has been dismantled nationwide, we can't say that the PT is really an industrial manufacturers or, or a party that's dominated by industrial manufacturing workers. The PT has a very large progressive middle-class component. And that's good insofar as it completely dominates uh, the universities and what exists of progressive media, artistic and cultural production, which is incredibly important in Brazil, where a lot of people do not read very well. And therefore, you know, popular music is really a, a, a kind of a news and information network for many people. The situation of Brazil's transition to a more service-oriented economy has just been disastrous. So the working class today, Cal, rather than having jobs in industrial manufacturing, like working classes elsewhere, uh, let's say Buenos Aires, you know, they've been largely de-unionized. Um, I don't know what union density is off the top of my head, but it's low in Brazil. And, you know, the, the number of young working class men, especially black and brown who are they're doing food deliveries on motorcycles and, and, and this sort of thing, right? So, you know, the Uberization or, or however you want to call it, but the nature of work has changed dramatically and the nature of production has changed dramatically. And, you know, speculative real estate activity is what has gone through the roof and, and that continues apace. But with the, the new PT government, there is uh, not only talk, but significant initiatives towards reindustrialization and, and providing avenues of finance and credit to stimulate reindustrialization, because that's part of the problem when there aren't uh, credit supports in place and there's not essentially subsidies encouraging this sort of investment. It, it doesn't happen because other forms of speculative investment give higher rates of return. So um, and one key piece of this, I think, is uh, the, the finance minister, Fernando Adagi, who was uh, Lula's handpicked candidate when Lula couldn't run in 2018. Uh, Fernando Adagi, who had governed Sao Paulo and who had been the minister of education under Lula, was called upon uh, to uh, be the PT's presidential candidate since Lula was in prison. And he did incredibly well. He picked up 46% of the vote, uh, which is really surprising given that he's a kind of soft-spoken intellectual who was not really that well known um, you know, nationwide in, in, in spite of his previous political experience. So Fernando Adagi is now the finance minister and he keeps insisting that 
getting 33 million Brazilians out of a, a state of hunger is top priority. And, uh, you know, the issue of central bank autonomy has come up because uh, the central banker who's, you know, basically linked to the Bolsonaro right wants to maintain interest rates really high and make it hard for people to get loans and credits and finance expenses and so forth and essentially try to tamp down domestic demand uh, through high interest rates. And, you know, what would usually be the case in Brazil would be that the finance minister and the, and the head of the central bank are on the exact same page about the need for, uh, you know, the continuation of ultra neoliberal policies. But that's not happening. And, you know, the finance minister has said, listen, we need to reindustrialize Brazil. Uh, we need, you know, value added manufacturing. We need to invest in science and technology. We need to make sure that we have adequate financing of our of our uh, higher education system. And, you know, they're talking about uh, reinstating a range of grants and fellowships for people to continue their education. Because one of the things that Lula's government did best was open up higher education to previously excluded sectors and to democratize higher education in that way. But as I said, it, it generated a cultural backlash. And I think now, you know, the PT government in arguing that they need to make primary education their principal focus is trying to take aim at kind of political and civic formation of Brazilians. And one element we haven't talked about is the strength of the evangelical church in Brazil and, and how much of a presence it has in working class districts where traditional working class institutions or sort of mutual aid networks have really broken down. And it's the, it's the evangelical churches and above all the Pentecostal churches that have stepped in to fill the void. And so right now what, what you know, Lula really needs to do is conquer the people who earn between two and five minimum wages. These people voted like something like 60, 66% for Bolsonaro. A lot of them are in the are in the evangelical churches, and yet a lot of them were not in agreement with the the attempted coup of the eighth of January. So as Bolsonaro kind of shrinks down to his actual size, it might be able to peel some of these people away and bring them into the Lula camp, as Lula shows that he's capable of making improvements in their kind of day to day life, and that's what's going to be crucial ultimately. Cal is kind of both transforming the consciousness of working class people, the political consciousness of working class people through campaigns of civic education, but also the material conditions of working class people. And that's already begun with talk of raising the minimum wage and talk of reinitiating the most important social programming programs in terms of housing, uh, popular housing programs and a subsidy for parents living in poverty who have children. So all of this stuff within 50 days is already kind of back up and running to a certain degree. And, and I just, I, I, I'm not usually in the habit of admiring presidents, not even presidents from the left, but it, it's hard not to be impressed by the, the stamina, the determination, the commitment, and, and the ability to kind of steady 
the Titanic, you know, I mean, it really felt like Brazil was the Titanic under Bolsonaro and right, 750,000 excess deaths during the pandemic, I think, and a lot, you know, something like 500,000 of those can be laid directly at the feet of Bolsonaro. Brazil has never experienced a period of free fall like this. I, I mean, I think it was worldwide in some ways, but Brazil was among the hardest hit in terms of free fall. And Carnival this year was notable for the absence of overt political expression. And it's the first time we've had Carnival since 2020. And in the last Carnival in 2020 and 2019, it was all about sort of Carnival threatening to become kind of street demos and, and, and almost a protest movement against Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo. And this time the themes are more ha have to do with history, with regional culture and, and different themes, but, but it's as, as though, you know, it's a memory people, it, it, it's, it's something people wanna put behind them as fast as possible. Even though Bolsonaro won 49% of the vote, probably only about 30% of them are hardcore supporters. And what seems to be happening is that Lula appears to be sort of solidifying his coalition at the national level in Congress and among these different ministries, which have been parceled out among the many different political parties, but also hopefully, and this remains to be seen, but hopefully kind of on the street and in working class neighborhoods, you know, where Bolsonaro was able to make serious inroads among all but the poorest of Brazilians who were consistently, you know, supportive of Lula, you know, all, all the way along. Can I just uh, say that this is KCYX uh, Community Radio. This is Loretta Rojas and Cal Winslow, and we're talking with the historian, wonderful historian, Forrest Hilton of the University of the Universidad Federal de Bahia in Salvador and uh, Brazil. This is a fascinating uh, discussion, but we're running out of time. So I apologize, but I'll turn this over to Loretto for any last questions. Uh, well, we have run out of time for us, but I have been really fascinating of hearing your update and giving us so much information that we won't be able to find any other place by but just talking with you so i want to thank you so much for such a profound and well-informed report from brazil and i want to say thank you for coming today to our program to talk about this. I know many of the topics that you have covered today can be found in other countries uh, with their own peculiarities, but similar challenges as in the regional areas that are totally dominated by families, you know, sort of small oligarchies, niches that we find all over in Latin America. And the case of uh, Brazil really can be found in other places, but unfortunately we don't have time to discuss those today. And I want to say thank you to our listeners, and we hope that you will join us again in two weeks from this morning at the same time. Thank you again, Forrest, for coming today to talking to us. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It was great to be able to, uh, to reach your listeners. 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Don't